0: I, I do a podcast. I'm not, I'm not interested in your podcast.
1: The anathema of God was for those who denied justification by faith alone. When that is at stake, we need to be on the battlefield exposing the air and combating the error.
0: We are unabashedly, unashamedly Clarkian, and so the next few statements that I'm going to make, I'm probably going to step on all of the Vantillian toes at the same time. And this is what we do at Simple the Radio. You know, we are polemical and polarizing Jesus
1: style. I would first say that to characterize what we do as bashing is itself bashing. It's not hate, it's history. It's not bashing, it's the Bible.
0: Jesus said, Woe to you and men speak well of you, for their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way, as opposed to blessed are you when you have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. It is on, we're taking the gloves off, it's time to battle. Welcome back to Semper Reformanda Radio. This is your host Carlos Montijo, flying solo again this time. Unfortunately, it's been kind of happening that way for some reason recently. Um, Tim kind of laments again that he he couldn't make it this time. We had pl- originally planned to do this, uh, the three of us, but um, he had to he had to work today, so he he wishes he could be here with um, our guest today to talk about some very important uh, topics that are really affecting the body of Christ. Um, very pertinent topic so um, I do have some administrative items to cover um, as you all know so we did get a new email just want to reemphasize that you can email us now at thorncrownministries@gmail.com, at and we also we have a uh, google voice number that you now reach us by if you have any feedback uh, questions or anything you can leave a voicemail and we can play it on the podcast and interact with your message You can find that in the thorncrownministries.com website, and the number is 915-302-0915. So you can reach us out there, you can send us an email, and uh, give us your feedback. So, without further ado, I have a very uh, special guest with us today. We have Hiram Diaz of the Third with us today. If y'all have been following the blog, you would have noticed that we recently published an article from him, the name of which is, Is Critical Race Theory Anti-Christian? And to which Hiram answers in no uncertain terms an unequivocal yes and so we want to kind of do a deep dive of what's been going on so Hiram why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to our audience Um, let us know uh, just tell us a little bit about yourself and um, your reason for writing the article
1: thanks Uh, like you said my name is Hiram Diaz Um, when I write I put Hiram R Diaz the third just recognition of Um, My predecessors my grandfather my dad, so that's why it's there, but you can just call me Hiram Diaz I am a lay apologist which means I don't get paid to be an apologist It's not like a professional title It's something that I do because I love the body of Christ and more importantly love the Lord I've been doing apologetics for quite some time now maybe 10 years or so um, since my conversion and before my conversion I was an atheist I was a Someone who had a false conversion was like 16 years old, 16 and a half years old. And I read a lot of theology at that time, read a lot of apologetics, but I wasn't converted. And this showed up, you know, a little while afterward when I started getting more involved in philosophy, uh, I abandoned the faith that I thought I had. And I just spiraled out of control philosophically, epistemologically, and even in my, in my everyday life. You know, drug abuse, partying, things like that. Um, and it wasn't until years later that the Lord saved me and delivered me from that. And when he did, I asked the Lord to just use my life, use my intellect, use all the knowledge that I obtained from philosophy for his glory. So I wrote on my own blog, which is invospec.org. It's my personal blog. And uh, when I was writing there, I got involved with a guy named Mike Burgos. He's a pastor out in Connecticut. We worked together for Carn for a little while, uh, Christian Apologetics Research Ministry, Matt thing When they had a blog, And he and I worked together and later on we we came together again and we started Biblical Trinitarian. And that's where you guys found the article biblicaltrinitarian.com. And that's where we're trying to provide scholarly resources for everybody basically, but uh, for pastors also. For people who are going behind the pulpit preaching, who don't have the time to collate all these these scholarly sources for different subjects. We're going to do the work as best as we can and then present it for people. You know, giving full citations so they can look these things up for themselves, whether we're dealing with annihilationism, unitarianism or uh, social justice, empirical theory. You know, uh, pastors don't have a lot of time to look these things up for themselves. And so we're trying to provide uh, scholarly resources, uh, well-researched stuff. So that's what I do. Um, everyday life, I'm just a normal guy. You know, I have four kids, I'm married and I work 40 hours a week You know, for the school district where I live. I preach also at my church, Port City's Reformed Baptist Church here in Lewiston, Idaho. It's been more frequent lately. And Lord willing, maybe I'll move into a full-time preaching ministry. But for now, it's just intermittent as, you know, as my pastor asked me to do this. So that's basically me in a nutshell. Very cool. And you asked me, did you ask me to to talk about like why I wrote the article or? Yeah. So before we get into the, into the article
0: that you wrote, I think you've also published a couple of books, right? want to talk about those
1: yeah yeah so um i self-published three books um uh the first one is non-neutrality a personal testimony that's about basically uh it's like a overhead view of how the lord saved me it's my testimony and i go into some philosophy stuff not into not in too much depth, but enough to show the problems that it causes intellectually and spiritually um, another one that I put out is um, it's called "Soul Sleep," a Unbiblical doctrine, and that is where I'm dealing with the question of whether or not the proponents of soul sleep, the heresy of soul sleep, whether whether or not they interpret the the metaphors of sleeping in a literal sense, and I show that they're not, and I show that if you interpret it literally, then you can't support the doctrine of soul sleep. And uh, the most recent, well, actually, there's another, there's four actually altogether. Another thing about it, the third one is um athanasius ontology and the work of christ and it's the title and in there i'm addressing another claim from Annihilationist regarding um the church father athanasius it's become popular for them to say that he was an annihilationist um, but i demonstrate from contemporary scholarship and from writers in the past and even from a, a well-known annihilationist from the past that athanasius was not an annihilationist and people didn't consider him to be one until fairly recently you know so they're manipulating history and they show that in the book and the most recent thing that i put out is called jesus was a trinitarian and that's essentially a response to a book by the Unitarian Anthony Buzzard, who wrote a book called Jesus Was Not a Trinitarian, <laughs> hence the title Jesus Was a Trinitarian. And what I'm doing is showing from uh, Jesus' interaction with the scribe in Mark chapter 12, where he, you know, the scribe says, uh, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment? And the Lord answers him. I'm showing from that text itself that although Jesus affirms the Shema, Deuteronomy 6 4, he's actually, uh, not supporting unitarianism at all but he's actually showing trinitarianism from the text of the old testament so that's the most recent thing that i published there's another book that mike and i and some other people like anthony rogers vocab malone and edward dalkor we put out a book recently called our god is triune and that's just uh multiple essays from me from mike from uh, eddie dalkor and anthony rogers and vocab malone regarding the doctrine of the trinity also rudolf bashoff he's a south african pastor and apologist and he wrote some articles in there as well. So that book is, it's a little more pricey, but that book is really good. Not because I wrote for it, <laughs> but because of the other stuff that other people wrote for it. There's a lot of meat there. So if you're looking for like systematic Old Testament interpretation regarding the Trinity, there's a lot in there. And you can you can get all these from Amazon or from other websites as well where you sell books. Excellent.
0: I didn't know you knew Dr. Edward Alcour. Um Ryan Denton actually knows him mm-hmm. pretty well, I think too. That's pretty cool, um, Small World. Good, good stuff. Um, you know, in light of what's the, you know, in light of recent events, namely the 2019 Shepherds Conference, you know, we kind of talked about this a little bit before. And uh, so I wanted to get kind of get your thoughts on it in, in light of the fact that you also wrote this article. Uh, it's a really good article criticizing critical race theory and you know so i didn't get to see the whole thing i mainly just listened to some like three or four podcasts i listened to todd friel uh james white and um, um uh jd hall talk about mm-hmm. it um, i i did hear the i listened to the clips and it was it was pretty bad from it just it looked pretty bad from my from from my perspective but uh, what were your thoughts about yeah. the
1: that fiasco there yeah it was Painful. Like I told you uh, before we started recording, <laughs> we talked about it a little bit. Uh, yeah, it was it was painful to to listen to, you know, because it was so obvious that they were avoiding yeah. answering questions, Like the questions that Phil Johnson was giving them, and these weren't even really that hard to answer. Right. You know, and especially see Al Mueller get so worked up. You know, he was palpably mad. You could tell he was upset. And you know, the, the question immediately should come to mind is if there's nothing going on, there's just, if there's no funny business going on here. And why are you so upset? Yeah. You know, why not just address the issue? If someone were to ask me about social justice, I would tell them I don't support it and are the reasons why. It, it's not a, it's not a complex issue. You know, it's mm-hmm. black and white. You either do or you don't. That's it. And if, and something that is really frustrating listening to these guys is the idea that, oh, the issue is too complex for us to get into in, you know, in a short Q and A session. Well, that's nonsense. You know, something that we know as Clarkians is you define your terms, right? If there's ambiguity regarding the definition of social justice, define it and then work within the confines of that definition. That's all you have to do. But even that is something that they didn't want to do. You know, so it was like I said, it was painful to listen to because it was so blatantly obvious that there were nerves being touched upon.
0: Definitely. Yeah. You know, it was interesting because it struck me as odd because um, Phil had talked to all of the men at the panel prior to that. In the green room or whatever it's called and they had agreed to discuss that issue so it just seemed very strange that when it came up with the cameras shining on everybody's face like it still kind of just went the wrong way and um yeah i was pretty surprised at how badly al moeller handled himself he was just you could tell he was kind of very defensive prideful arrogant even um, it, it was pr- pretty disappointing. And it, and it was interesting. I was going to mention this, um, it, before as well that I went to Lifeway and I saw, um, mm-hmm. they had a little social justice so- shelf section where I saw Eric Mason's book, w- Woke Church. And it oh. was endorsed. Yeah, right on the cover page, it was, uh, Ligon Duncan's endorsement. Of that book, yeah. and so you can. Th- there was an obvious. There's an obvious contrast there, and um, yeah, it, it, it was pretty bad. It, it was pretty ugly, and I think everybody yeah. has said some helpful things. Between I don't know if you got to listen to like Todd Friel or James White or any of the other critiques of that um, of that incident, but um, one thing I do appreciate is that this uh, this at least is going to force the conversation. You know, it, hopefully. Hopefully it will force a conversation, um, you know, between these men at least and um, and to the church at large as well to kind of tackle this issue head on. Like you, you have to deal with it. And so, yeah, this is definitely something that is um, a lot of people are just misinformed about. They're not they don't have a biblical as your article very well illustrates. They, they don't have the proper understanding of just how badly um, this social justice, critical race theory is. Contradicts scripture. And so, um, and you know, on that note, um, I wanted to see if we could just dive right into your article. Um, I got the chance to read this a couple times and I I was really, I I really enjoyed reading it. It was a, it was a very good, um, kind of an expose of, of this critical race theory stuff. And I like how you, you basically detail, um, it was kind of neat to see how you, when you uh, so so in our previous discussion, you mentioned that you studied literature, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I thought that was pretty neat because I studied literature, English and American literature in college as well. And you know the big buzzword at the time was postcolonialism, and this this whole this whole issue of of postcolonialism kept coming up. And the, the literature de- mm-hmm. departments were being practically redefined by it. Um, and it's it, it's exactly this stuff that you talk about in the article, like th- this. These um, academics were formulating theories about critical race and stuff. And it was like happening right under my nose. And it was interesting because I, I just sort of dismissed it as postmodern babble but postmodern nonsense I never really dug into it but that's what I appreciated about your article that you actually dug in and you showed just how anti-christian it really is so why don't we talk about uh, just first your motivation for for writing the article
1: well like I said when I was introducing myself um, I love God's people you know and I love the Lord more you know even more so uh, and it's really sad to see specifically white believers right because this is this is an assault in a lot of ways on white christians quote unquote white people Hmm. you know um and it's it's really sad to see because as a christian you are motivated to do good works for god's word as a christian you desire to serve your neighbor to love him as yourself to give your life for your neighbor if if necessary you know what i mean right and to see a group of people taking that good desire That God has instilled in us by regeneration, by the indwelling of the spirit and trying to manipulate that to guilt people into doing something that they're not required to do by God's law. It's not only heartbreaking, it's also angering, you know, because that's essentially what you see happening with people who are promulgating the social justice nonsense. Instead of taking advantage of, you know, the Christians who are going to be more sensitive in terms of uh, recognizing past abuses of one group by another group. They're taking advantage of it. And that's one of the big reasons why it uh why I was why I thought I should write about it. You know, another issue is the fact that I am Hispanic Mm -hmm. and I grew up in quote unquote the hood, you know. Hmm. And I see the I see the hypocrisy behind all of the social justice stuff. You know, I grew up seeing my own people, the the tensions between Puerto Ricans, right? And tensions Mm -hmm. between various uh black groups and various ethnic groups and the racism that exists there that nobody ever talks about, right? And the way that it's being promoted now with social justice and critical race theory, even in the secular world, is as it's as if the only people who are racist are white people. And that's not the case at all. You know, so that that's just on a personal level why it was bothersome to me as well, because it's pure hypocrisy. It's not a realistic depiction of what's going on at all. Not at all. Um, like I said, it's and like I talk about in the article. This is an academic thing and it was birthed for academic and social purposes. And it's not realistic it doesn't match up to reality but another issue is the fact that critical race theory social justice these things depend upon a worldview that is not christian at all and if you embrace it then you are going to come into head-on conflict with the christian faith and for you know for a pastor to go up on stage like uh, matt chandler did and talk about white privilege as if it's a thing and for uh yeah Al Moeller to talk about white supremacy as if it's a thing, you know, one of the things that Al Moeller says in uh, a, a response that someone had that he had to someone who asked him a the question, they said, you know, tell us what your take on social justice is. And so he's going, he's saying, uh, well, you can find this on YouTube. He says, well, I don't agree with the Marxists. I don't agree with the neo-Marxists, et cetera. Um, not a liberal, obviously not a leftist. And he goes, but there are issues of white supremacy that need to be dealt with. And I'm thinking, okay, well, you're saying you don't agree with them. But in order to come to the conclusion that there's such a thing as white supremacy as the academics define it, which is what he's saying, right? He's saying he agrees with that. Then you already have to succumb to a postmodern way of looking at the world. Wow. You already have to do it. You know, so he, uh, on the one hand, he says, you know, my position. You know that I don't, you know, I don't support Marxism. I don't support the whole leftist totalitarianism that's going on. And it's true, politically, he doesn't, right? But if you're going to stand there and say you want to approach white supremacy as the academics define it from a Christian worldview, well, congratulations, you're contradicting yourself. If you're accepting the academics definition of white supremacy, of white privilege, then you've already shown that you've given into a worldview that's not Christian and you are a double minded person. And you one of these things needs to go either your Christian faith or the social justice postmodern ideology that's lurking in the background, you know, but this sends mixed messages to God's people. And not only that, but it it destroys the gospel. You know, something James White talked about is the unity of the church in light of um, the whole social, social justice movement. And how these social justicians are basically tearing the church apart by setting black people against white people, white people and black people against Hispanic people, etc. Right. By dividing right. us all by our skin color and by our ethnic heritage. And he ties that directly into the gospel. and He's absolutely right because critical race theory cannot coexist with the gospel social justice as defined by the academics cannot exist alongside of the gospel you know it contradicts Christianity at almost every point and purposefully so because like you mentioned it's tied into postmodernism and postmodernism was an assault on the Christian faith like explicitly so you can read the postmodern philosophers and they talk about their antagonism toward the logos Christ they talk about their antagonism toward reason rationality and and against quote unquote, the patriarchy. A lot of people don't understand that the patriarchy isn't just uh, some sort of feminist thing that has to do with men. It goes all the way up to God himself, right? Because we know from scripture that God is referred to as a he, as him. And so the feminist anti-patriarchy thing also ties into an assault on Christianity. So like I said, you, the, these are some of the motivations for writing in. I want to clarify these things and get really down to the brass tacks, right? It's not an issue of whether or not uh, those who are opposed to social justice want to love their neighbor because that's the way it's presented by those mm-hmm. who are criticizing the critics. Yeah. They say, oh, well, you guys must not want to love your neighbor. It's like that's not the issue. That's very superficial. The issue is that when you get down to brass sacks, you get down to foundations, you guys are pushing, implicitly pushing a worldview that is completely contradictory to Christianity. And is going to destroy the faith of those who are in the church. And God's elect won't fall away into perdition. We know that but that doesn't mean that you won't give them a heck of a time trying to deal with (laughs) understanding what's going on. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you will bear the, they'll bear the responsibility for doing that. You know, if I can help my brothers and sisters not have to go through that struggle, then I, then I want to do that. And if I can do that by writing an article where I clarify some of these things, I want to do that. I really, I really appreciated uh, what you were doing in the
0: article and, and another funny thing. So, we have, I'm starting to find a lot of common ground between us since I'm myself. I'm also Hispanic and, um, probably have some, some, uh, similar experiences to what you were describing about your, mm. where you grew up and stuff. So that's, that's really interesting. Um, so in terms of your, the article here, um, this, this really struck me because when I first read it, I kind of was just kind of breezing by it. And it, I didn't realize, so in the very first paragraph, I'm gonna go ahead and read the first paragraph and then comment on it. Uh, okay. You write, Matthew Mullins, professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, has a series of articles titled, Is Critical Race Theory on Christian? In which he seeks to demonstrate that CRT is not incompatible with the Christian faith. The articles form an apologetic defense of the recent utilization of CRT by professing evangelical leaders, such as Al Mohler, Thabidi Anabwile, Russell Moore and others who are presently attempting to make social justice issues a primary concern for all Christians. This has been the cause of conflict between themselves and other evangelical leaders, as well as their congregants and other like-minded believers who see such an emphasis on social justice, quote unquote, issues as contradictory to the central role of the church in preaching and teaching the scriptures, summarily expressed by the law and the gospel and not engaging in social activism. So it kind of it's funny because we just talked about the, the Shepherds Conference and that just that is exactly what's been going on. And so I was really pretty surprised. The thing that struck me is that I thought you were critiquing a, um, a, a secular professor, like an unbelieving professor. And it turns mm-hmm. out that this guy is a professor, alleged Christian professor, I would, have, I would assume at a mm-hmm. at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I'm assuming this is part of. Uh, the, is this an SBC seminary? Do you know? I believe so. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, surprise, surprise. That just hit me right in the face. Um, mm-hmm. So, why don't we start to unpack that a little bit and see where you're going with it? Okay. Insofar as the the first paragraph.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just or? just the article. Uh, Mullins, like who Mullins is, and okay. Well, I don't know much about Mullins, but I do know the the more I looked into Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary the more I started seeing uh, bad stuff like this. <laughs> um, I learned about the series of articles through the pulpit bunker on Facebook, uh, JD Hall, uh, pulpit and pen. They have a group on Facebook right the pulpit bunker where people post different articles about stuff that's happening. Basically like uh, news um, you know, people post news and right. um, sometimes they write about it at, at the website. So I found out about the articles and I was like, are you serious? is there really somebody trying to justify the, the admixture of Christianity and critical race theory? So I went ahead and I read the articles and I was just blown away. You know what I mean? Cause if you know, if you know anything about postmodern philosophy and you do, you know, uh, post-colonialism and all that stuff that comes along with it, you know, that these things are incompatible. So um yeah. I don't know much about Matthew Mullins, but I did see the article and I started reading it. And then I started looking, just looking around uh, at the college website and seeing different links to things like kingdom diversity is something that they're pushing. Wherein, it's basically like a form of, um, I'm going to say this, um, affirmative action for people in ministry roles. You know, that's what they're pushing for. And this is wow. something that Matt, Matt Chandler talked about where he famously or infamously talks about, um, you know, if he has a, a white pastor that's more qualified and then a black pastor who's just a little less qualified, he's going to hire the black pastor who's a little less qualified. You know, this is basically affirmative action, like I said, in, uh, in ministry. So Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, they're promoting this idea as well. Um, and they have other things. I think they recently just started, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a course on postmodern philosophy and, uh, not in the sense of uh, critiquing it, which a Christian university should do. Uh, but in terms of like trying to converse, they say something along the lines of trying to put Derrida and Foucault postmodern philosophers in conversation with the Bible and, if you know about postmodernism, you mean know that, that that's that's very specific jargon. And most people don't catch on to this. But to say that you're putting one text in conversation with another text is to assume that neither text has superiority over the other in terms of uh, which one has truth. And you're putting these two things together to try to come up with your own conclusion, basically. Right. Mm-hmm. But people don't know this because it just sounds like regular talk, you know. Um, just like when people say we need to have a conversation about social justice in the church. That doesn't mean people just talking back and forth. That's a very specific way of talking in postmodern jargon, which is to say conversation is a denial that there is a transcendent communication from God to man. And the only thing that you have left when you deny that is imminence. You have discussions between people groups and you are negotiating terms of power between the people groups. And that's what the terminology of conversation really refers to when you get down to the foundation of postmodernism. You know, so this is something I saw um, in the public bunker and I followed it through and I was just taken back by. Really, the. it seems like a purposeful misrepresentation of critical race theory for the sake of, like I say in the article, presenting an apologetic in defense of it. You know, because. The thing that really is frustrating is when I read these guys, is that. I believe that they're aware of the fact that a lot of people aren't going to sit down and read Jacques Derrida, a French philosopher, right? Mm -hmm. But they are going to listen to their pastor and apologist saying that these people, these philosophers have ideas that are contrary to Christian faith. So knowing this, the person who's supporting the postmodern philosopher, postmodern philosophy, critical race theory, what it seems that they do, and I'm going to go ahead and say, I believe that this is what they do. They take advantage of the ignorance of the Christian, the naivete of the Christian who's trusting in the word from the apologist or the pastor and they say right. is it really the case that you know just like the serpent in the garden, has God really said, you know, it's like, is it really the case that these postmodern philosophers are that bad? You know, don't they say things that are similar to Christianity? And that's the in. You know, that that's that's the in right there. They sneak in and then they start promoting the ideas of these people. You know, not not giving a level headed um, evaluation of what these people are saying. But saying, hey, they say good things and we say good things. And what, what's what's the big deal? Yeah.
0: Yeah, that's that's really dangerous. And the way you describe that, it's funny because that's exactly what men like Tim Keller do and and how they repackage Marxism and socialism to the church. And mm-hmm. that that's it's And that's no surprise that he as well is on the wrong side of this uh, of this issue. Um, I, I did want to mention um, when I read this article, I was really um, I really appreciated your perspective on this and how you take a very noticeably scripturalist approach or Clarkian approach to 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 how you crit, uh, critique the critical race theory. So I was um, I thought that was excellent and how you presented the issue and how you responded to the issue, biblically speaking and from a from a scripturalist perspective. So I know we talked about the, uh, that before a little bit um, that you uh you uh, you appreciate the writings of Gordon Clark and all that. So let, let's let's keep jumping into this. I want to really unpack kind of uh, you have like six major points, right, as to mm-hmm. um, kind of the problems behind critical race theory. And so why don't we start with the definition? You know, in uh, a la Clark, how, how about we start by defining our terms?
1: Uh, critical race theory is it's a theoretical framework in social science, and it uses critical theory to examine society and culture and the relationship of society and culture to the law, to race, to power. And this started within legal schools. And this was in uh, the 1980s or somewhere around there. But there was, it can be traced back a little bit farther than that. But it ties into something called critical legal studies. So critical legal studies in American uh, jurisprudence, this was at the same time when The analytic philosophers and the continental philosophers, and broadly speaking, you can say the English and British and American philosophers versus the, uh, Western European philosophers, let's say. Uh, At the same time where all these philosophers were questioning universal truth, absolute truth, um, whether or not man can come to the conclusion of truth, whether or not morality is absolute, all these things, um, basically the beginnings of postmodernism. At the same time as this, legal studies in America, were questioning whether or not you can use, let's say, a syllogism, deductive syllogism to come to the conclusion that a person is guilty for a particular crime because they were questioning, again, universals, transcendent truth, et cetera. And so critical legal studies builds off of that. It's basically the degeneration of real thinking in terms of syllogistic reasoning and coming to a conclusion about guilt and uh, innocence in the court of law and moving into things like um, trying to interpret the motivations of groups that are forming laws, right? So instead of taking the law as a given, what you say is, as a critical legal theorist, you you look at who benefits from the formulation of a law and you make it about that, right? And so you can see how this ties into critical race theory because critical race theory is kind of doing the same thing, right? It's saying no absolutes um, and what we're left with is relationships between individuals vying for power. And so you have to look at the terms as we're coming forward to see who benefits from definition of terms, who benefits from society being uh, structured in a certain way. So that's what critical race is uh, criticizing. But it comes from critical legal studies. And those two things also come from critical theory in philosophy and critical theory was uh, assessment and an assessment and critique of society and culture. And they did this by applying knowledge from the social sciences and from humanities, literature, philosophy, things like that. and Max Horkheimer and Theodor Adorno were two philosophers from the Vienna School. This is in uh, Western Germany, or in Germany, excuse me, not the Vienna School. I apologize, this is a different philosophical school, the Frankfurt School. And this was in Germany in the 1930s, and they focus on again power, social relations, and they were Marxists, right? So they utilized Marxist thought, but they also use utilized uh, Freudian thought. This is another part of the background of critical race theory. The critical theory part comes from Um, These guys, uh, Theodor Adorno and uh, Max Horkheimer, and they're using sociology and political philosophy to deconstruct society in favor of Marxism, essentially. And um, another thing with critical race theory is intersectionality and intersectionality is another kind of framework, another way of looking at relationships in society. And basically what they're doing is identifying how interlocking systems of power as they would say, uh, impact those who are marginalized in society. So me as a Puerto Rican male, they would say I have, even though I'm Puerto Rican, so I'm quote unquote oppressed. um, I don't believe that, but that's how they put it. I have an advantage over a Puerto Rican gay male, right? Because I'm straight. You know know what I'm saying? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And so they would look at that and they'd say, well, on the power spectrum, you have more power than this individual because you have, Uh, You have straight privilege. Right. And then they say, and that gay Puerto Rican male is dark skinned and you're light skinned. So you have another advantage over him. And so they look at, (laughs) so people are analyzed according to the groups that they fit into. And so that's, that's another aspect of this. And that all ties into, again, a rejection of transcendent truth, a rejection of God. Essentially this is an atheistic framework in the most, uh, I guess in, in one of the most clearest ways, this is atheistic or attempting to be atheistic at least. And it's head out to Christianity, but individuals aren't seen as individuals. They're not seen as uh, persons made in the image of God. Obviously individuals are seen as the products of the cultures to which they are, uh, to which they belong. And you're seen as the product of historical circumstance. You're seen as the product of, intersectionality, the various uh, categories that you fit into. And so these are some of the things that are involved with uh, understanding critical race theory. It's a framework. It's a way of looking at the world that divvies things up in this manner.
0: Yeah, that's, that's crazy. So like, I think, in other words, if, 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 if you're a woman who's black and, and a lesbian, for example, then you have like three overlapping layers of intersectionality that somehow um, makes you the victim of these, you know, the opposite or the the people who have power over you in three different ways. And that would require um, some kind of reparations or something like that. Is that is that kind of where that's going? Yeah, basically. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. crazy. You know, and and a, one of the and you're definite when you're defining, uh, you're kind of listing out the definitions of this. Um, the critical race theory. One of the things that stood out to me was. Um, I think the uh, the one where the one where you say race, uh, you're quoting Mullins, I guess, and saying that Mm -hmm. race is social construct. And um, so I'm gonna read where you say that, or I guess he, you're quoting him, where he says this means that race is a social reality rather than a biological reality. It does not mean that they think that everyone's skin is the same color. It means that characteristics we associate with those colors are imposed rather than inherent. Race is something. We have inherited to organize our world rather than a product of our DNA. And for uh, critical race theory, folks with lighter skin have organized the world based on values assigned to colors that privilege themselves and oppress people with darker skin. So uh, <clears throat> this kind of struck me. And as I was reading this, I was like, I, I wasn't, I wanted to kind of see if you can maybe clarify a little bit because it sounds like what they're saying. Um, are they because I don't think they deny that race actually exists. Right. But they're saying um, white people, for example, have used race to sort of um leverage uh, themselves against other colored, different colored people. Um So but because it, it, I'm trying to see if like are they saying are they denying that race. Is a biological reality or where are they going with that?
1: So when they say race is a social construct. In postmodern philosophy, everything's a social construct. Everything. Okay. Um, and particularly categories are a social construct. So race would be a category, and it's something that humans have constructed in order to, um, excuse me, like, um, like Matthew Mullen says, it's been invented to organize the world. So it's not a, it's not a product of something natural. It's something that's superimposed upon people groups. And, um, it's not a denial that there are genetic differences between people groups, right? It's a denial that these genetic differences are determinative of, of these people groups and individuals who belong to those people groups. So part of this is due to the fact that race as a social construct is a reality, right? Um, the idea that there were four main race groups, white, black, red, and yellow, was a construct. You know, it, it's not something that you derive from a study of genes, of genetics. They didn't have the study of genetics when. Um, The division of all humanity into four groups of people. When they came up with that, the study of genetics was, was not even started, if I'm not mistaken. You know, I think they were beginning to mess around with plants (laughs) to Mm. find out things about genetics. You know, so it was, it was superimposed upon people groups. And so there's a little bit of truth to this, right? Um, dividing society into the, into groups like that and giving them distinct characteristics that are incompatible with each other, right? So, the white European was viewed as superior in terms of, let's say art and these stereotypes that even today you have, right? Like white people are smarter, white people are better at, uh, building societies. And then, you know, another stereotype would be something like Asian people are better at familial relations, let's say, right. Mm -hmm. These are things that are superimposed upon groups and it's a, it's a false form of essentialism in philosophy where, uh Whereas as Christians, we say there is a form of essentialism where we are essentially the image of God. And so what we do is determined by the fact that we're made in God's image. That's a real form of essentialism. right? We'll never stop being the image of God. But the false form of essentialism is what you find in the idea of race as a social construct. And that's what the postmodern philosophers, critical race theorists, are arguing against. They recognize that there are genetic differences. They recognize that there are cultural differences. But they say that these are not determinative of those people groups. And those people groups are basically allowed to, should be allowed to define themselves, right? That that's yeah what you're getting down to. You know, you're saying take me out of the category because you are pigeonholing me and let me define myself on my own terms, right? So right. that's uh that's what it's fighting, that sort of um uh, superimposition of a false category on people groups. Okay. That, yeah,
0: that's helpful. So, and then another one, this, this, the third point also stood out for me. Um, your article I, I quote, so color blindness is a problem, not a solution for critical race theory proponents. The idea of treating people the same, regardless of their histories is why racism persists. Critical race theory proponents argue that if racism has evolved over time into an integral part of the structure of our society, and if that structure holds some people back and gives others a leg up, then to treat all those people the same is to maintain a status quo that disenfranchises, disenfranchises some and privileges others. So mm-hmm. one thing that uh, this didn't really make sense to me because it's like, well, if these people are, are in favor of some form of reparations, then... What, what the scenario you just described that Matt Chandler, um, explained in his, uh, in the, and his message on the MLK 50 conference, which I thought that was one of the worst conferences I've mm-hmm. ever had to sit through. I mean, so, like you said, Chandler was describing if he, I think what he said was if he was interviewing pastors and he had a seven out of 10, um, mm-hmm a uh, black guy and an 8 out of 10 white guy he would hire the black guy and but if there was like a 7 out of 10 black guy and a 9 out of 10 white guy he would hire the white guy because then it would be too obvious it's yeah. like as if that wasn't a blatant form of showing partiality like that you just mm-hmm. committed the sin of partiality by categorizing them in that way and it's like well isn't that exactly what these people are doing its it's almost like a contr it seems to me like a blatant contradiction because this is like a form of affirmative action like you said mm-hmm. so what's up with that
1: yeah well the, the colorblindness is a problem and not a solution this is another thing that you know you remember the black lives matter movement oh yeah right i remember every you, black lives matter black lives matter everywhere and then you had people who were saying you know what all lives matter right right and what did the black lives matter people say They'll say well that's that's wrong for you to say that. It's wrong for you to say all lives matter because what that does is, it, you know, it, it pushes us to the side and it, it you know, it treats us as secondary, as not important. And anyone who's thinking normally is going to say that's insane. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, right? Because you know, we know if if I say all people are important, the word all is a universal and includes everybody. Right? All lives matter. Well, if right. you're black, you matter, right? But the reason why colorblindness is a problem, black lives matter, versus all lives matter, why this all makes sense to them, the proponents of critical race theory, postmodernists, is because, again, there's no transcendent truth, ultimately, and this this is why the epistemological aspect, the philosophical aspect is something that needs to be dealt with. When you deny that there's transcendent truth and you say that all truth is the result of individual cultures working out their ideas, and negotiating the terms of their existence with one another and negotiating the terms of their existence with other people groups, then what you are left with is the idea that knowledge is relegated to a particular group. So black people have knowledge that is specific to them and they have experiences that are specific to them only and knowledge that's specific to them only. This is hyper-relativism in epistemology, right? Mm -hmm. And what this means is that there is no universal subject and in philosophy, when we talk about the universal subject, we're talking about the idealized uh, human being, right? So as Christians, we say the universal concept of the subject is the image of God. And we have a concrete version of that in Christ. Christ is the perfect image of God. He's the perfect man and he perfectly represents the father. So as man, we see what the image of God should be like in, you know, incarnate. Uh, but we know that universally all people are the image of God, whether they are fallen in Adam or whether they've been redeemed by Christ. Right. So there is a universal subject. But in postmodernism, there is no universal subject. And the way that you can look at it is like this. Um, for philosophy before postmodernism, the subject, the agent, the moral agent was the one who created the world around him. In postmodern philosophy, the subject or moral agent is the one who is created by everything around him. So they completely turned it on its head. And because of that, they deny that there's anything uh, like colorblindness, because if there is no universal subject and there is no universal truth and there is no transcendent truth, then to say that you have transcendent truth is to basically take your opinion, your truth and to superimpose it on everyone else and to exercise power over them. Now, this is, this is not what people would hear when they hear someone say colorblindness is a problem. Because the way like I quote in the article, the way that they word it is well, if racism has evolved over time into an integral part of the structure of society, and if that structure holds some people back, et cetera, right? They make it very concrete. But in reality, there's a really abstract philosophical background here that says your experiences as a black person are completely distinct from the experiences of a white person. So much so that, you know, when you know, think about when people say um, something like, When you talk about homosexuality and someone says well unless you're gay you wouldn't understand right or yeah right when you say abortions murder and they say well do you have a uterus so how are you in a position where you can judge these things if you've never been in a position of being pregnant right this is where it comes from it's the idea that your individual experiences because you as a you're a product of time circumstance society imminent relations between people negotiating the terms of their existence because you are the product of those things, no one can come to you and tell you from a transcendent point, a point of view, point of reference, that what you're doing is wrong, that what you're doing is immoral, that what you're doing is right even. All they're doing is giving you an opinion from an outsider point of view, and you are the one that's in control of whether or not you, know, you accept that. So for somebody to say that we should be colorblind in terms of um, race relations and things like that, for the postmodernists, for the critical race theory is for them to say... We should take one particular viewpoint, namely the Western European viewpoint that comes from uh, the ancient Greeks and Romans. Which is for them, white supremacy. And superimpose on every other group and thereby ignore their individual problems. So. So,
0: wow, yeah. that is profoundly disturbing. I, I, mm-hmm. So the whole the, which it sounds like what you're describing is that this whole my truth is my truth. Your truth is your truth. You can't really tell me uh, if I'm right or wrong. The 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 leg the academic legwork behind that is basically this stuff, this critical race theory that just relativizes
1: pretty much everything. More or less, yeah, yeah. And that's insane. Even more broadly uh, conceived, it's um, excuse me, it's postmodernism. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's that. So
0: and and speaking of that. So you you talked about essentialism and mm-hmm. uh, could you could you could you kind of define what that means a little bit because I I wanted to ask you something
1: about that. Okay, well essential essentialism versus accidentalism in philosophy it's an age old it's an age old debate right. We talk about the identity of a chair let's say and we can talk about what it is that makes a chair a chair and what it is that makes a chair a red chair versus a blue chair right. We'll make, mm-hmm. what it is that makes a chair a chair those are essential properties the essence of a chair is to be x y and z whatever it is right let's say it's to have four legs and to have a, a back and a seating area if we define that as a chair, then that's the essence of a chair something that doesn't have that is not a chair um, accidents this goes back to like i said it goes all the way back in philosophy but aristotle is the one who really uses this language and he codifies it when you talk about metaphysics he talks about um, accidents, and accidents are basically modifications to different uh, subjects, broadly conceived, different beings, right? Modifications that don't change the identity of that thing. They don't change the essence of it, right? So a blue chair is still a chair, and a red chair is still a chair, because they both have the essence of what it means to be a chair. So the color of the chair, that's what you would consider an accidental property, and what it is that makes a chair a chair. Those are the essential properties. That's the essence of the thing. So postmodernism says that distinction is dubious. They say there is no essentialism. There, there, there's no, there's no essential, uh, definer of all things. And like I said, this is atheistic when you get down to it, there's no one who's defining all of reality. It's us who define reality. So there is no essentialism. All there are, are the accidents of history. Of space, of time, of gender, of the relationships that you've had in the past, your own personal history. Um, it's postmodern. Uh, postmodernism behind all of this is anti-essentialist. It's right. like going against that idea. And with that, if you can tell, I mean, you it's only you take a couple steps, and what you see is that this is a repudiation of logic, because with logic we're dealing with identities, we're dealing with fixed identities. The law of identity says A is A. the post says there are no fixed identities well then you can't even have a conversation with them
0: yeah that's that's really interesting so and incidentally i think this reminded me of the the, i believe this is how roman catholics justify their view of transubstantiation right they say that um they believe the bread was um is still essentially the body of christ but it was accidentally changed into into to look like bread or taste like bread or something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um yep. so yeah, it's that's that's a very that was a very helpful clarification there. So now what I wanted to ask you about this was does mm-hmm. denying essentialism in essence presuppose that you hold to a form of
1: nominalism? Um yes, it does. Okay. Yeah. But and for postmodernism it's like a radical nominalism. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, it's about as bad
0: as it can get. I mean, mm-hmm. and, um, so I know I, I figured you, yourself being a Clarkian, a scripturalist, um, you know, the, the difference, the, there's realism and there's nominalism. And obviously, from a Clarkian perspective, we would say that the, um, the, the idea, the truth, the truth, the proposition of the tr- of the truth itself is, itself the reality that there is no we would deny like a um a a correspondence theory of truth where something has to correspond to reality in order to be true or or things like that and also we would because i know uh clark has he basically refuted aristotle's nominalism uh did a brilliant job of refuting it by just showing like if everything is a proper noun then you can't talk about anything anything Mm -hmm. having something in common with anything else right so yep um so that's that that's kind of what what struck me there that it would seem to presuppose a form of nominalism which is utterly at odds with with Christianity i mean that's like you mm-hmm. wouldn't be able to hold many of the doctrines of the bible uh that way right. and so it, this is like this is worse than i initially thought it was i mean it's really bad mm-hmm. for you to have this serious of uh, holding to these perspectives requires you to presuppose so many things that are like your article does a very good job of describing things that are utterly contrary to the Bible. I mean, it's astounding how mm-hmm. just how bad it really gets. And um, yeah, so when when I wanted to read this part, too, so you, you talk about this, you quote this guy again. I think it's Mullins again. Um, So in your article, you also say. Critical race theory proponents see themselves um, as actively being committed to expanding history, which is to which is to say, quote, telling a more complete story of the United States history than many of us learned in school. End of quote. They they uh, they also, quote, critique colorblindness by, quote, focusing on revealing how stories, laws, customs and decisions that seem to be neutral or colorblind are actually built on assumptions about race end quote additionally critical race theory proponents seek to quote make the legal system fairer advocating for voting rights and changing speech norms so th- this is where i kind of wanted to talk about our our background in literature so this this immediately reminded me of the, the when i studied literature back in college how post-colonialism was just completely redefining literature studies. And, mm-hmm. um, it, it kind of, it really surprised me because the exactly the stuff that you're talking about here in this critical race, and I never studied it formally, but the, it, it was the byproduct of this critical race theory stuff being yeah. completely taken o- taking over the literature departments because now they were saying, oh, you know, we have a white, we have a white canon. Of, mm-hmm. of, of male, uh, we have a, a canon yeah. of white male authors, right? You have Shakespeare, you have Milton, you have all of these mm-hmm. classical uh, figures who we consider like, you know, giants of literary studies, liter- classical liter- literature. Um, it, it's all of a sudden now a problem because we are mm-hmm. oppressing and suppressing these other minorities. And the, the whole concept of like post-colonialism, right? Where they say, well, why do we get to define what literature is? Like we we took over these people, and these people have uh, valid forms of expression as well, right? And so now yeah. now it's almost like everything and anything, any scribbling on a piece of paper by a a person who was uh, colonized by a, by a European or a, a white na- uh, people group, mm-hmm. now all of a sudden their literature is is just as valid or just as worthy of, of being studied as as anything else. And it's like what well, you know. It was so, it was so strange, um, mm-hmm. to see like that, not, not, like the qualities that you would basically judge a good literary work that what would make a good, uh, a work of literature, uh, worthy of being studied and, 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 um, examined and, and so on and so forth. Now they just basically, it almost seems like it became a, a history class, uh, riddled with propaganda to just like make, make us Make everybody feel bad for studying all these white people for so long and not giving these other repressed minority groups a chance to study their literature,
1: you know, yeah, yeah yeah that's exactly that's exactly it. when I was in school a few years ago, like six years ago or so, I went back to college for a little bit and um i I was studying literature, I was studying just various kinds um one of the things that always came up was this issue exactly, you know? Post-colonialism, and yeah. you know the standards for judging the work. I remember I was reading, uh, I believe it was "Their Eyes Were Watching God," right, by um, Zora Neale Hurston, right. And yeah. and I commented on some of the language. My professor was saying, like, look, this is overwrought. This is like heavy-handed. Is you know just basic giving a basic, basic li- literary criticism of the work, saying these are the good points, these are the bad points. And the bad points that I was saying, he basically was like, well. That's coming from a particular perspective, and that's not necessarily the case when it comes to African American culture, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, dude, really? <laughs> really? Because if it, if it was Shakespeare who was doing this, you would, you would lay into him, right? Yeah. If it was, you know, it, uh, look at John Milton. If you, if you're familiar at all with like the studies on Milton, like people go to town on Milton because of yeah. the heavy handiness of some of his writing and how overwrought his stuff is, and like it's over the top. Um, but just because a person is from a repressed people group or you know people could had it harder, like they get a pass on it it yeah. doesn't make any sense you know, and when you consider the the fact that you know and this is the greatest irony of the whole well, and I love pointing this out to people the the greatest irony of the postmodern critical race theory social justice thing where it's it's pro minorities right it's pro mm-hmm. pro everything that's ever been oppressed is that all of these ideas come from white european males right and that, that's the thing that i find hilarious about it because they're like yeah you know white supremacy white supremacy i'm like okay well if if there really is white supremacy then you're playing right into it because <laughs> the guys that you are building your philosophy on they were white guys <laughs> from europe who had no conception of what it was like to be a black person in the middle of the day in africa you know doing yeah. things in a small village they were white europeans who are typically wealthy or well off in one way or another way they were privileged and so." your whole philosophical edifice is self-contradictory, you know? But yeah, I agree with you. Wow. The same thing that's that's there in the, in the literature classes, that's one of the things that really saddened me when I went back to school, uh, is the fact that it went from being literary criticism, which is a good thing, I think, uh, studying how people right. write, what are effective ways of writing metaphors, all that stuff. It went from that to essentially being, well, let's look at this text through the lens of uh, reader response theory. Or let's look at it through post-colonialism. Well, let's look at people in the text who have power versus those who don't have power and see if this text is actually supporting uh, people who are oppressed or supporting people who are privileged. And it's like, is that why Shakespeare wrote Hamlet? You know, maybe there's some of that in there, but he's dealing with way bigger issues, right? Yeah. Is that is that the reason why, uh, you know, Melville wrote Moby Dick? There, there's some of that in there, sure. He's dealing with way bigger issues. Again, he's dealing with you know philosophical issues that go beyond you know the the accidents of history, as it were. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's
0: really that that's really that's taking me back, man. I I I really appreciated you bringing this stuff up because you know it's one thing, and we're not saying, of course, we're not saying that there's no value in studying these oppressed peoples and their literature and stuff. But it's one thing to judge the best expressions of of the written language namely english by by th- the authors who have been quote unquote canonized in literature departments like shakespeare like milton and these these folks um who have been almost universally considered to be some of the best expressions of the english language as opposed yeah. to just putting that on equal merit with an oppressed uh writing of somebody who who um simply because of the fact that they were oppressed all of a sudden that gives it some kind of uh, weighted weighted um, status to to judge it on the same level as like Shakespeare you know it's just Mm -hmm. it's so ridiculous and how it it just seems to deny the obvious that the the differences are obviously there and so Mm -hmm. um, yeah that that really it it, it was pretty it's pretty eye-opening stuff as I'm kind of going through this and just my my experience in college th- this stuff is all over universities and that was really one thing that mm-hmm. I wanted you to touch on as well because Mullins apparently he's trying to to sell people the lie that this stuff did not originate in academic circles that it er- originated <laughs> in the streets of of protest right because yeah, yeah there was even after racism was outlawed that there were still um, there were still other more subtle, covert forms of of racism and stuff. So you you mind touching into that a little bit? Yeah.
1: Um, you know, like something I noticed with with heresy and false teaching is, again, they will heretics, false teachers play on a real concern that that Christians have. You know, and in this case, it's going to be the social well-being of other people. Right. In our country, the civil rights movement is rightfully noted to be a really big event it was yeah. you know it's a it's a really important part of our history um you know so the thing that's dark about um you know what's wrong about what this guy is doing is that he's latching on to the moral proclivities that we have as Christians and saying well anyone he's basically insinuating that anyone who says that critical race theory started in philosophy well that's wrong and what's right is that it started at the grassroots level. it was just people like you and me man just fighting fighting the man, fighting the structures of power and it's like that's not the case at all <laughs> it's, it's not the case at all and you know the funny thing is like he I cite in the article the, two of the people who are responsible for bringing critical Roy's theory to the prominence that it has now uh, Richard Delgado and and John Stefan Stefan Kick, I believe it is right. And they openly say, as a scholarly movement, critical race theory began in the early 1970s with the writings of Derek Bell, an African American civil rights lawyer. And the first black to teach at Harvard Law School. He wasn't just a lawyer. He was a professor, right? And he was writing about interest conversion, means of understanding racial history and things like that. But he was also part of a group of scholars. So they explicitly say, you know, in their introductory work on the subject, they explicitly say that this is tied into academia. Because it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And anyone who knows the stuff, anyone who, who has studied, like I said, like you who were talking about postcolonialism, postmodernist literary studies, you can see the terminology. It clicks. You know what I mean? It's like Pavlov's dogs when they hear the bell, they right. start <laughs> salivating, right? <laughs> but when you, you know, when you hear when you hear things like power and privilege, you're like, oh, wait a second, I heard that, right? You know. Or you hear, you know, let's have a conversation. Ding, bell goes off. You hear that? You know, because it, it takes you back. Um, but that's one of the things that was so uh, upsetting to me about this article by Matthew Mullins is that he's like, well, it started in the streets where people like you and me were fighting the powers that be. Sure. It's like, it, right. didn't. it didn't. It started in a scholarly movement and it trickled down masses. Like everything a scholarship does, you know, in our own time, we have the effects of postmodern philosophy. Postmodern postmodernism is dead as a philosophy. Right. Post uh, postmodern philosophers are gone. You know, yeah. They flourished basically in the 1980s. In the 1990s, you had some developments on that. And now it's, it's, you know, people are debating what, what the new, the new movement in philosophy is. But in our society, the effects of postmodern philosophy have finally come down to us. Right. As the society is crumbling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's, and it's in part because the academics, they push this idea. They push it. They push it. They die. They don't care what happens. <laughs> and it trickles down to us, you know, so. This is a safety of a critical race. theory. It didn't start with people in the streets. It trickled down to the people in the streets because it provided a useful tool for reorganizing things in society. It became a useful tool for pushing for things like Marxism and socialism. But yeah, Matthew Mullins is just wrong. And either his degree is not worth the paper that it's printed on or he's lying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And that's the only conclusion that I can come to, because yeah. I'm not even a scholar of the subject. And I know for a fact that he's wrong. I knew it right. whenever I read the article. So.
0: Yeah, that that's very enlightening. And you know, obviously, being a, a, a scripturalist yourself, we we would would hold very strongly to the to the tenant that theory always precedes practice, right? And mm-hmm. and I really appreciate how Clark would demonstrate the history of of philosophy from a high level, from a big picture. Is that Every these movements always start in the academic and philosophical high towers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they always start with the theor- theoreticians, with the philosophers, formulating these ideas, and then they it takes as the years go on and their their ideas start spreading through the uh, through the educational institutions and through um, through, through to to the masses. Um, you start to see the effects and the and the fruit of those of uh, of those perspectives and philosophies, and so. Um, Another really interesting thing here, you, you, your article really kind of highlights just how much critical race theory uh, and and postmodernism are basically bedfellows. Um, mm-hmm. And and in order for you to call that Christian when it's postmodern, it's it, it's it's like a rank contradiction. You Like you said, it's mutually exclusive. There's no way. These two can coexist. Like, there's just Mm -hmm. no way. And what really struck me about that was that, you know, uh, I took a postmodern literature class as well when I was studying literature. And the class was, it it felt like a gigantic waste of time and money. Because when I, (laughs) the the trash that I was reading, it was like people were barfing out nonsense putting mm-hmm. it on paper and calling it literature and it was to the point it, it wasn't even coherent and these were like considered valid expressions of of creativity and and it was like one of them i remember was i think it was a native american author and he was saying like uh the fancy dancer fancy dancer dancer like he just kept meaning <laughs> one word after another and that was supposed to be some sort of like creative expression of the English language. I mean, it was utter nonsense. I mean, the stuff wasn't even coherent. And it reminded me a lot of, uh, I don't know if you've read Schaefer's work, um, uh, How Shall We Then Live? Uh, Some of it, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great book because in that book he details, he sort of highlights how movements, when they become, and, and one of the main themes of that book is what you're describing in your article and how there's always a tension between the 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 particulars and the universals and so mm-hmm. basically what you're describing in the article is that critical race theory denies universals and only mm-hmm. and when you're only left with particulars um it's like schaefer describes basically you're left with man as the ultimate standard his own yeah. ultimate standard and that erases any standard whatsoever and so um and truth for that matter and so um i thought that was pretty fascinating how it's, it's, they're, they're so clearly bedfellows because essentially all you're really doing with critical race theory is you're applying postmodern philosophy to subjects, to the subjects of race and, and social issues and, and, and so on and so forth. I mean, that's really all it is. It's the application of postmodernism to those okay. areas. And so, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's just, it, it's baffling to, to how a university professor how professors, not just, I mean, we're talking about an entire denomination, the largest Protestant denomination in the country is trying to justify these perspectives as Christian. I mean, it just, mm-hmm. it, it really is baffling to me. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't, it, it's, 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 that's about as bad as it can get at that point. I mean, mm-hmm. so that really did, I really appreciated how you, how you kind of helped expose that in the article and, um, so I think, um, I wanted to also touch on something here. You, you have a really interesting, uh, uh, section about the incarnation. Um, so that, that, that was really, uh, that really kind of, uh, uh, stimulated me a lot, a lot intellectually. I was really kind of, um, got my gears grinding. So you mind, you want to get into that a little bit? When you talk about the incarnation, uh, yeah,
1: sure. <clears throat> Excuse me. Yeah, uh, this is another thing that really, you know Before I started writing this article, this is something that I thought about for quite a few years now. You know, especially with the Black Lives Matter thing years ago, um, because I had brothers and sisters in Christ who would say things like, you know, like we mentioned earlier, um, unless you are such and such a person, you can't, you can't tell me that you know about subject X, Y, or Z. Right. And something I noticed from listening to that is like, that's, that's relativism. Right. That's that's a denial that the truth comes from the mind of God and is given to us. And that's what scripture teaches. The truth is given to us by God. Right. God reveals the truth to us. Romans chapter one tells us that there's general revelation given by God and scripture itself is a form of special revelation that's given to us by God. Whatever we know, we know because God has given it to us. Truth is eternal. God is eternal. You know, so, um, to say that truth is relative to a particular person, particular experience, etc., is to deny that truth is God's property. Firstly, that it's His possession, and it's also to implicitly deny the incarnation. And the reason why is because Christ is God and man. Right? When we talk about the incarnation, we are affirming that Christ is fully man. He's fully God, and because He's fully man. And fully God there's an overlap there between his knowledge as God and what he knows um, in his human nature right in the incarnation right you know if the son of God incarnate knows the same things that he knows prior to the incarnation which he does then you cannot tell me that anyone's quote-unquote truth is relative to their perspective because he was a Jew you know living in second century exactly uh, yeah. person, right and he's a male he's of a particular height he's not very wealthy from what we can tell he didn't have like uh, these great social ties that you know like somebody in the sanhedrin would have so you know the the irony of people saying well jesus was a brown person like you know when they talk about jesus was a, an immigrant right we they <laughs> tried to justify immigration yeah. stuff like well he was a displaced brown person it's like so what? Like that, mm-hmm. that says nothing about the relativistic nonsense you're pushing, because he's he's God Himself, right? The one person maintains the, the same omniscience, which means that there is a direct overlap between what he knows as man and what he knows as God. His human nature and in, and you know his divine nature, and the way that this works out for us when we're talking about critical race theory is that look, again, if you are affirming that Christ is who he is, he's truly God and truly man, you cannot affirm that any knowledge is relative to a specific people group, a specific person, specific skin color, etc., because he knows all things and he's not a woman. <laughs> he's not, he's not a homosexual, right? Not to be blasphemous, but you know, to put this out there because this is what they're trying to say, right? You know, unless you're gay, you have this knowledge. Well, he wasn't gay. He wasn't a thief. He wasn't, you know, uh, unless you're Irenaeus, he wasn't an old man. Irenaeus believed Jesus died at like 50 or something like that. Um, <laughs> but uh, you know there are a whole bunch of different groups that he doesn't fit into and yet he knows all things and he knows them in the same exact way that he knew them when he was with the father prior to the incarnation and he's always with the father but you know what i mean uh prior to the incarnation his knowledge his knowledge doesn't change he right. learns and he grows in grace you know he grows in in favor with men and with god yeah and that's something i think it's above my pre-grade for pay grade for understanding fully but we affirm that Christ is omniscient and because of that, we cannot affirm critical race theory because critical race theory says, you know, you can't be omniscient as a human being. Yeah, you know? well, we can't be omniscient as a human being, but the God man can. And if the God man can, then what that means is that there is a direct overlap between his knowledge as man, his knowledge as God, such that there is no such thing as relativism at all. Jesus can tell us about universal human nature, which he does. Right. And he says, out of the heart proceeds blasphemies, evil thoughts, et cetera. He can tell us about the universal nature of all things, which he does. He can give us these categories by which to understand the world, which he does. Yeah. You know? And this doesn't reflect his specific mindset as a Jew living at a, at a certain time as a male who was born to, you know, a displaced family, et cetera. None of that nonsense matters. What we see in Christ is that truth comes directly from God. And it's not dependent upon us it's not dependent upon our circumstances we don't make truth we receive truth from god and christ himself is the incarnation of truth he is truth itself so critical race theory is mutually exclusive with the incarnation you cannot consistently hold to the incarnation and critical race theory you can't and what this means as a side note is what this implies necessarily is that white privilege needs to go out the window um the idea of white supremacy as a systematic understanding of society needs to go out the window as well, because those things are dependent upon the relativistic epistemology that we're talking about from postmodernism. And that's incompatible with our belief that God became man in Christ. So,
0: wow, that is fascinating in an extremely disturbing and bad way. Um, so the, the, that really fascinated me. And, um, you know. This this also kind of brought to my attention a few other things that kind of got me thinking. So what you're saying is that no one person, essentially no one person can know the same thing as any other person because their um, reality has been constructed by, by who they are, by their race, by their gender, by their uh, upbringing, their cultural background. All of this stuff colors your perspective of what the truth is, right? And so that mm-hmm. it's almost like they're saying, therefore you can't know the same thing that any other person knows. And, and so it's all relative, right? I mean, mm-hmm. and which leads me to, to make the conclusion. So that basically means that they affirm, uh, polylogism then, right? That there yeah, are, yeah,
1: of course, uh, there are it, many it, logics,
0: it, yep. right? Exactly. It's a necessary sort of presupposition to to to, in order to hold to this view it would require you to presuppose that there are many different kinds of logics and that Mm -hmm. your logic is not necessarily better than the the white the the black you know oppressed lesbian woman's logic or you know or people who have different religious views for that matter um and so that's that's so disturbing like Mm -hmm. For for people, for these people, these professing Christians, not just Christians, but Christian teachers and scholars to hold Mm -hmm. to a perspective that would actually lead you to deny the incarnation. And now as I'm thinking about it, it's not just a denial of the incarnation. It also would appear to deny omniscience, because if if you can't know something unless you experience that person exactly the way he experienced it, then that would mean God can't know everything. Right, exactly. because God yeah. can't know what it's like to be a woman, or 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 a black person, or a uh, a Hindu person, or whatever the case may be. Therefore, he there would be things that that actually you know that
1: God doesn't know. I yeah. mean, and and this is why. With I didn't mean to cut you off. Yeah, no, go so, go for it. Yeah, and this is why one of the reasons why um if you remember the emergent church movement ten years ago or something like that. Yeah, one of the things that they were pushing a lot was open theism not only open theism but also um what is it called uh process theology Mm -hmm. right and if you're familiar with those open theism is what god doesn't know everything he doesn't know the free choices of his creatures right right he he can't know those things well what if your free choice is to experience something that gives you knowledge that you could only obtain by experiencing well that means that there's even more that god doesn't know right and the only way that god's going to know those things is through process, through development, through changing, with his creation changing. You know, so this is the reason why the emergent church was heavy on that sort of theologies, because they were postmodernists. They were trying to be, at least, uh, taking the postmodern way of looking at things and applying it to Christian theology. And what conclusion did they come to? Well, okay, we have to deny essentialism. We have to not deny universalism of any kind. We have to deny the idea that there are divine uh, archetypes of ideas in God's mind, right? We have to affirm mm-hmm. radical nominalism. We have to affirm open theism. We have to affirm that God is changing with us, because if their if their postmodern assumptions about knowledge and man, etc., are true, then the things that scripture that we believe as orthodox Christians are not true, and God has to change with the you know with the worldview that they are that they are. Proposing and that they're assuming, so there's a direct tie there. You know, just you hit the nail on the head, man. Right? Wow, that's so,
0: that. I mean, that's a huge list of things that are so blatantly anti-Christian. Mm-hmm. Just to, just to require, just to, for you to hold that perspective requires you to uh, subscribe to a massive list of of even like blasphemous teachings for you to mm-hmm. say that you know something that God doesn't, and therefore which would even it, which is even worse because now, therefore, God can't judge you because he doesn't know the truth in the thing, whatever it is that your experience was, he can't judge you. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like you could go. It, it gets so bad at that point. I mean, there's no stopping point to that. I mean, wow, it is. That is insanity. I, I just.
1: This well, is universal. Great. Sorry, go ahead. go ahead. Yeah, go ahead universalism is mixed in there too. And yeah, that's something you find with the postmodern emergent church people too, is universalism. Surprise, surprise. And, yeah, yeah. And, that, and that's that's part of the reason why, right? Because, yeah, sure, the Jews had their laws, their Ten Commandments back in the day, but I mean, you're not a Jew, right? Wow. <laughs> so they don't apply to you. You know, those are just, that's a historical record telling you about the past and you can learn from it and stuff. Yeah. Um, but you know what? God is love, man. And God knows that you are trying to figure things out in the world. It's like completely, completely anti-Christian. But I mean, where else are you, where else are you going to go when you deny the foundational assumptions of the Christian worldview presented in scripture? And then you try to say you're a Christian. It's all going to fall apart, you know, and that's what you see with critical race theory, postmodernism, you know, the Christianity that these people are holding to who are sound. Like I mentioned earlier on, the Christians who are wrestling with this stuff as if it's legit. They're going to have come to a point in the road either, you know, early on, which I hope for, and I hope I pray for that, or after struggling for a long time and coming to some ruinous situations in their life. You yeah. Know you? And you can completely avoid the ruinous situations by just really sitting down and thinking, okay, what is it that critical race theory says? What is it that white privilege assumes? What is it that social justice assumes? Um, when we're talking about what it really foundationally assumes. What does it really say about the world? What does it imply about the world? And is that compatible with with what Scripture tells me? On the face of Scripture, you see that it doesn't doesn't match, right? So look at what Scripture says on the face of it. Is the world created? Yes. Is the world organized by categories? Genesis chapter 1 tells you explicitly that God organized everything by categories. Right. So you got to get rid of any kind of hyper-nominalism, any kind of... uh, anti-categorical reasoning you know
0: yeah that that's wow so yeah I mean it it is the almost the exact if there was a an opposite of Christian it almost seems like it's the exact opposite of what everything everything that Christ Christianity is by definition Um, just it's just it really you know this and this reminds me of uh, an interesting experience I had when I was in college I took a religious studies class, um, that was about like women, I forgot what the, uh, something about women and religion, like women and religion or gender. It was called gender and religion. And uh, she invited uh, a friend of hers to come and speak to the class. And she was a black Methodist preacher, a pastor. And so it was, it was interesting because she actually was kind of conservative because my my professor okay. she was more liberal but the her friend the 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 black the woman preacher she was kind of she was actually somewhat conservative and so um she she somebody asked her a really interesting question they say how when you read the bible how do you understand it or how do you process it and she said well when i read the bible i read it first as a woman and then mm-hmm. as a black person and then as a Christian or she said something like that, you know, I forgot the order that she listed it in. But it was like, oh, man. And then the, it, it sounded so wrong. But mm-hmm. after reading your article, it took me back again to that point, started salivating that and and it realized she's she. that's an expression of critical race theory. Right. Just right before mm-hmm. right then and there. I mean, it's so it, it's just crazy how it. You, in the university, this stuff is, like, inescapable. Um,
1: oh, yeah. It's mm-hmm. it's
0: incredibly – it's just incredibly prevalent, and it's just, wow. It's so disturbing. And really, I, I really hope this kind of uh, salts, salts people's oats and, and encouraged uh, people to read your article because it really um, – you, you bring out this stuff so well and uh, really just expose how utterly contrary critical race theory and and the the presuppositions that it holds they're just so utterly contrary to to the bible to the most basic teachings of the bible even the incarnation even god's omniscience even like just the the most basic uh doctrines of the bible um so you know i really appreciate you coming on on the on the show uh i really hope we can do this again sometime with some of your other work and um i know we've run a little long but did you want to did you want to comment on anything else or, or close out with any, any closing thoughts?
1: Uh yeah. Some closing thoughts. Well, firstly, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. Uh, Definitely. I've been blessed by the work that you guys are doing. It's encouraging to see uh, an upsurge of Clarkians here and there.
0: Yeah. yeah. Amen.
1: <laughs> it's, it feels like there's Vantillions like everywhere, you know, <laughs> we're oppressed. <But>, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're, we, we can, we can claim some sort of inter- intersectionality or privilege, right? <laughs> we're Puerto Rican, uh, you know. We're Hispanic, uh, uh, Clarkians, <laughs> you know. So we <laughs> should get reparations. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, uh, like I said throughout, you know, my main concern is uh, is getting down to the root of the issue, right? Yeah. Something that that's really problematic. Uh, now let's put it this way. Um, for a while back in the day, a few years ago, I was going back and forth with the Annihilationist over at rethinking hell, right, yeah, and debating back and forth through through essays, and something that always would come up is, well, you're being mean, you're being harsh, or we should be more uh, patient about this particular position or things like that, and other issues related to morality, right? Well, if you're a Christian, then what we should really go for is. Some sort of um, compromise between this and that so that we can have charity between the two of us. And I'm like, that's a Trojan horse. Mm. It's a, that's Heretics always use, and I'm not saying everybody there is a full-blown uh, unregenerate heretic. You know, that's not what I mean. But when people have false teaching, they always have a Trojan horse. And that Trojan horse, nine cents out of ten, is some sort of pietistic sounding, some pious sounding nonsense, as Clark would put it, right? Well, we have to be united in in the essentials, and it's like that's a whole issue here. We're we're not united in the essentials, <laughs> but that's how. I'm sorry. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right? No. Yeah, that's obvious, right?
1: Yeah. You know, so that that's one of the reasons why I want to write this is show. Like, look, you're gonna get this from everybody around you. You're gonna have people who will tell you about sob stories about how they were pressed. They'll tell you about their family, where their family came from. You know, I can go off on a long screed talking about how uh, the American government went into Puerto Rico and forcefully, uh, you know, made women infertile, which which our government did, right? right. I can talk yeah. about Operation Bootstrap, which is a really horrible thing that happened in the history of Puerto Rico. I can talk about how my ancestors were, they weren't picking cotton, but they were in, um, you know, in the sugar plantations They were being beaten for not gathering enough sugar cane. You know, I, I can go to all that. Uh, but if I'm doing that and then I'm slipping something in heresy in there, then I'm not, um, my concern is not to get you on my pay, on the same page morally. My page is, to, excuse me, my, my goal is to throw sand in your eyes wow. while I sneak in the heresy. Yeah. And this is what they're doing. You know, the social justice movement is really harping on, playing on Christians emotions and Christians. Good intentions when it comes to loving their neighbor as themselves. And the closing thought here is, if you want to know what to do for your neighbor, if you want to know what a real concern for your neighbor is, go to scripture. Scripture will tell you what suffering is. Scripture will tell you what oppression is. Scripture will tell you how to alleviate oppression if you need to, or if you need to. Scripture will tell you how to help those who are suffering. And it'll do so obviously in the way that glorifies God. And doesn't contradict the Christian worldview, you know. Um, go to Scripture, you know, because if you really are concerned about um, the state of minorities in America, quote unquote minorities, if you're really concerned about those things, if you really think that there are issues there, socially, go to Scripture and see whether or not your concerns are valid. Go to Scripture and see what it is you are supposed to do, what you can do, see what you're, see what the Lord has ordained for you to do. Because it's all there. If we really hold to soul scripture, if we're really evangelicals, then that's where we need to go. Not to the postmodern philosophers and not to the anecdotal stories of people who have literally been oppressed or who claim to have been oppressed or whatever. All those things are to be judged by the word of God. Amen. All yeah. of them. So
0: Yeah, great stuff, Hiram. I really appreciate you coming on and talking about this. I mean we barely touched we didn't even get to touch on a lot of the points that you that you talked about on the article. So I really encourage our readers, our listeners to um, uh, check out the article as is critical race theory anti-Christian. Yes, you can read it at Biblical dot com or also at uh, Thorncrown Ministries dot com. And, uh, you know, you touched on a lot of topics that I'd love to have you back on. man. Uh, you, you talked about annihilationism. I kind of toyed around with annihilationism a little bit when Chris State uh, converted and he really kind of got me thinking about some things and I was like no you know what I I was struggling to see where he was off until until I kind of dug into it a little bit deeper but yeah it'd be great to talk to you about that stuff and I appreciate the fact that you have a um that you've studied philosophy uh you know and 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 that you've uh and obviously that you have a scripturalist perspective to process it and to analyze it so um there's a lot of stuff there that we can definitely I'd love to 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 chat with you more about um so again we think uh, thank, thank you again Hiram for the this is a great article uh, our thank readers you, definitely hope our readers take a look at this it will it will really help you um see where this movement the social justice movement is headed and it's not it is, it is utter destruction i mean it, it is it is the end of the 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 church as as the bible defines it for that i so um, um I want to thanks thanks everyone again for uh, staying staying with us and uh, we'll catch you next time. God bless.